on News at 10. Secrets of the melting ice. We travel to Antarctica with the expedition going deep underground. It may look frozen and timeless, but it's warming up and it's changing faster than anywhere on Earth. Researchers from the Royal Botanic Gardens in London warned that a fifth of all plants are at risk of extinction, vulnerable to climate change, habitat loss or disease. 63 people from environmental campaigning group Extinction Rebellion have been arrested. Climate change activists have been gathering in central London today. The Extinction Rebellion group led a series of marches that joined up in Parliament Square. As we saw on a banner earlier, they want to highlight the urgency of the climate change emergency. Already, this movement is gathering pace. Climate change is serious. Pollution is serious. Protesting about the greatest existential threat that is presented to us right now. There will be a time when we will look back and ask ourselves what we did right now. How do we want to be remembered? People are already suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate and environmental emergency. But if enough people are pushing for change, then change will come. And we are those people. Portobello Portobello Welcome to Portobello Radio Station. Join us, Lucas, Karen, Annie and me, Michelle. This is Bees in the City. Me and the crew are currently en route to West London to interview Bill Anderson. And I have to say, as these lockdown measures ease, it's great to get out of the house. I'm heading towards a red brick building that is the Tabernacle and the heart of this West London community. It's sometimes referred to as... The Taj Mahal of North Kensington and, of course, the home of Notting Hill Carnival. In the distance, actually, I can see Grenfell Tower. Just the top of it and the words, forever in our hearts. For me, this really cements the collective feeling of loss, really, and the urgency to take more care and responsibility for not just each other, but our natural world, too. We're now approaching Power Square on Portobello Road, and I can see Bill in the distance. Although Power Square might be mistaken for just a little pocket park, it actually has a vast history. I believe it was a focal point in the 1950s race riots where residents campaigned for social change. And today, I guess we use it as a place to raise the profile on bees and our fragile ecology. As I drove closer to this interview, I'm a bit nervous. I realise I know nothing about bees, only that they risk extinction and desperately need our intervention. I guess that's why these series of conversations with the experts hold such paramount importance. Stay tuned to hear me speak to the expert hive keeper, that is Bill Anderson. We're here live from Power Square. Joining us is Bill Anderson, who for some is more well known as the TV director of many much loved TV series, including Doctor Who. And he's also the author of a new book called The Idol Beekeeper. Now, I read somewhere you prefer to be referred to as a hive keeper. Could you explain to the listeners why that is? Yeah, I mean, the difference really is, is that um, I don't keep bees. They keep themselves. They're a wild animal. Even when you say, oh, they're in a kind of hive and there's a beekeeper there with a white suit looking after them and the beekeeper might look a bit like a farmer. The bees are wild. No one's yet invented a hive with a lock and key because the bees have to be able to come and go to fly to get food. So they, they do their thing. Uh, 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 beekeepers have great difficulty controlling the way that bees breed. Um, they can't control how they come and go. So uh, they're basically a wild animal. And what you're doing, or what I'm doing, and I think what most beekeepers are doing, even if they claim they're doing more than this, is providing them with a home. That's literally it. So you're providing them with somewhere where they can live. And the other thing about being a hive keeper rather than a beekeeper is that we know that bees have been around doing what they do for 15 million years, at least 15 million years. And they can do it absolutely without us. So what I'm going to be trying to do is create a hive which provides the environment that the bees have been used to for 15 million years. So for 15 million years, bees lived in a cavity in a tree. Uh, And this was an inherited accommodation from someone else. And so this cavity would have started when a bit of 
fungus kind of got in when a you know a branch fell off. Here, 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 I've got a you know mad thing here. This is an indication of where a branch might have snapped off, and uh, fungus polypore spores of fungus get into that wound in the bark. And if the tree doesn't manage to grow the bark over quick enough, then the fungus starts to rot the wood on the inside, and it starts off in a very small way, and there's no cavity at all, and you might get and midges laying eggs in it and their larvae and um, hatch out and it's a nice bit of food for them and then slightly bigger things come along and feed off the midge larvae and then slightly bigger things come and feed off them and all the time the rot is rotting more of the wood and eventually you get to a kind of state where something as big as a woodpecker might be going in there and it's pecking out a, a hole for its young and it chooses that spot because the, the, the rotting wood is softer to kind of actually peck out and make a home, uh, you go for the uh, uh, rotten wood. And quite often when we hear woodpeckers tapping on a tree, what they're tapping for is to hear a different echo back from the tree, which tells it there's rotten wood in there. So let's suppose you've got a woodpecker that makes a nice cavity in a tree, pecks it out uh, for its young, and then it, for whatever reason, abandons the nest. Some bees come along and they go, this is perfect. This is a perfect size for us. 40 litres, which is about the size of your kitchen bin, is the size that bees like. It's the Goldilocks size. They've been, when they're offered bigger spaces and they're offered smaller spaces, they don't choose them. They choose 40 litres. It's a bit like if you've got two kids um, and you're trying to look for somewhere to live, a studio flat is not big enough. Westminster Abbey is too big. You're not going to be able to heat it and you won't be able to occupy it fully. So 40 litres for bees is that they go, yeah, there's going to be about maybe 60,000 of us in the height of the summer. We need this much room and they will then um, move in. So this, this is the kind of thing that I am trying to replicate for the bees because when the bees move into a space and start living there, they've had 15 million years of evolution to convince them they're living inside a tree. And if anything that you're offering them about that space as a hive keeper is less good than a tree, then the bees are gonna do less well. So just to show how the hive that I use is, is like a tree. Also, you know, when, when bees move into a tree, all there is is a hole. There's not those, you know when you see beekeepers pulling frames out of hives and looking at them and then they slot them in and it's all very precision and a, you know, a framed hive is like a chest of drawers with 11 drawers. Uh, yeah, but they, they've got to slide and you know, they've got to fit and not fall out and what's coming and it's really, you have to be a cabinet maker to make one of those. Well, the bees start off with a hole. That's all you need is a hole. So, and what they do is they literally, when they're making comb, they form a chain. If you imagine that each of these links um, is a bee, what they'll do is they start at the top and they work their way down. They form a chain and they kind of link together and they build above their heads. How long does it take them? Well, uh, it takes them uh, not very long at all. Uh, I mean, especially when they move into an empty space. When they move into an empty space, what they're trying to do is there's one bee, which is the queen bee, who's laying all the eggs, having all the babies. And when they move into a new space, this is a swarm moving in. So there's maybe 20, 25,000 worker bees and one queen. And what they want to do is they want to get her having babies now, 2,000 a day, her own body weight in eggs every day at the height of the summer. If you were a, a healthy adult female human um, giving birth to your own body weight every day, um, that is, it's 14 babies a day. So respect. She lays her eggs, one egg goes inside. Each egg gets its own little hexagonal cell in the comb. So she, very, very quickly, they want to build 2,000 of those every day to accommodate all these new babies she's having. So they're going like crazy. So they're very systematic. Yeah, what's really cool about it is, I brought along a little bit of comb for you to have a look at. So here's what they're building. This is an amazing structure. If you look down through one of the combs, you can see a kind of Y shape, like a Mercedes um, emblem. Can you see that? Yeah. So basically what that means is, is that the two sides, although it's got two sides, they, they are um, shifted 
so that the other side acts as a structural support on the triangulation. They're not like built so that the two sides are exactly like that. They're shifted to gain extra support. Do these ever get it wrong? No, not really. Wow. Not really. And so here's the thing. There are no architects. They do it perpendicular because they hang in space and they are their own plumb line. So they, they, they're hanging there in space and they just know if I just build directly above me, that'll be vertical. The amount of time a bee spends working at the construction site on this cone is 30 seconds, which means a bee turns up and sees work in progress and then goes, right, I've got 30 seconds and I'm going to add my eight flakes to this, which means that inside every bee, they know how to make an entire structure of comb. Every bee knows how to do all of this because it can turn up at any stage and move it forward. It's fascinating, isn't it, how instinctively they know how to do this over and over again for millions of years. Now, it makes you wonder if there's any competition amongst hive keepers and are there any instances where your colony could move on if they found better conditions elsewhere? Absolutely. So how do you prevent that from happening? The, the best thing is, is that you provide a volume which they, you know, if you, when you're attracting a swarm yeah. and they, you want them to come to your place rather than somewhere else down the street or yeah. whatever, you want them to come to your, you have to provide the right volume so that they, it's big enough for their family, not too big, not too small, the right, the right size. You need, um, uh, what they really like, ideally, when they're first moving in, is they like to find a place that's about 15 feet off the ground. Okay. Which stops predators being able to climb up and, you know, get them and attack and steal the honey and things like that. They're like a south-facing entrance. Why is that? Uh, it lets uh, light in and also because when they fly, the bees navigate by the sun. Okay. They have the two big eyes that we know about and then they have three very small eyes on the back of their head. And all these eyes do, they're really simple eyes, they just detect light and dark. But they can detect, um, they always know where the, the position of the sun. So they always know where they are and they kind of actually also always kind of know what time it is because the sun's moving. And so when they're flying, they navigate by the sun. If it's a south facing entrance, it just means that as they fly out of the, fly out of the hive, they get their bearings instantly. And so they can then get on more quickly. Inside the hive, uh, you, you know, you might think it's a place where honey's stored, like a honey factory. Or you might think of it as a place uh, where bees live. But actually, at the height of summer in a hive, there can be as many as 40,000 newborn babies. So actually what it is, is a neonatal ward. They are having tens of thousands of kids. And the really crucial thing about these kids is that we, you know, with the comb, it looks really good. Um, it's the right size. The queen's laying an egg each in all of these little things. You're ever expanding then? They're ever expanding. There's, you know, there's, there's lots yeah. of these in parallel. But yeah. th th she's doing all this. But those youngsters, in order to live, have to be kept at 35 degrees centigrade 24-7. Okay, so what they do is they keep it warm. The way they do it is um, they've got enormously powerful wing muscles and um, to fly, to you know, fly around, you know, really powerful. So what they do when they want to uh, heat, warm, warm up the the comb with the babies in is that they disengage their wings and they've got one set of muscles that lift the wings up and the other set of muscles that wing, pull the wings down what they do is they tense them both at the same time they go nowhere but they get really hot because they, their muscles are using up energy and they literally become heaters and then when it's too hot what they have to do is they have to go and collect water bring it back to the hive sluice it on the comb and then fan their wings to evaporate it and then as it evaporates it cools it down now both of these things are phenomenal amounts of work phenomenal amounts of work which require phenomenal amounts of effort and phenomenal amounts of fuel and the fuel is honey so they're going to be using honey uh, to do that and they ha it's, it's utterly non-negotiable if the temperature goes much above or much below 35 degrees centigrade, all their children die. And then what's the point? What's the point in any of it if your kids aren't surviving? So here's the other interesting thing, fun fact about bees. Inside the hive, it's 35. Inside you and me, it's 36. Basically, the inside of a hive is basically the same temperature as, as, as inside us. 
your very good question about how do I make my bees come to my place rather than someone else's. I insulate these boxes so they're like that. So what I could do in, in, so it's location, 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 okay. and then it's insulation, insulation, insulation. That's the main thing, right. and size. But the way that I do it, because you said, can't you just use a tree trunk? Well, you can if you're an enthusiast, and you could, and that'd be brilliant. The tree, the bees would be going, yeah, that's fantastic. But when this is full of honey, a box is full of honey, it weighs as much as an eight-year-old child. It's really heavy. It's 25 kilograms. Okay. If you made a box that had if this had walls that were as thick as a tree, it would weigh as much as an eight-year-old child. So when you were taking off a box of honey, it would weigh as much as a 16-year-old. But the really cool thing is, is that um, you, can, um, you can achieve the same level of insulation as 10 inches of tree with this much wool. So hold it there, you can see. So basically now, if you, wrap, if you wrap this hive in that thickness of wool, it's now equivalent. When the bee goes inside, it will go, wow, this feels about right. Um, our energy bills, the work we have to do to maintain the temperature for our young is how it should be, how it's always been for 15 million years. And how our, the other thing is that they've got this amazing aircon system in order to keep the temperature constant. And that has evolved safe in the assumption they were going to be inside a tree with that level of insulation. So basically what I do is I wrap, I wrap the hive in this wool. And the cool thing about wool as an insulator is, is one, that you get it from applying sheep to grass. It's totally renewable, it's totally sustainable. The sheep can have to be clipped without hurting them. And also wool is an amazing material which has evolved to keep a sheep at 36, 37 degrees centigrade. So it's got all kinds of insulation tricks up its sleeve because if uh, a sheep, uh, you know, if the wool doesn't keep a sheep alive, then it's not gonna carry on evolving as wool. So I did an experiment on, on um, uh, I've got a little balcony like that one over there with the flowers on, on the front of my house. And I put two of these uh, uh, two boxed um, uh, things six feet apart. On this balcony. One was insulated, one was bare wood. And I've had 11 swarms choose to move in. Guess how many of them chose the uninsulated one? None. All of them chose the insulated, every 100%. Exactly that. So assuming all those points are met, location, south-facing entrance, capacity, is the assumption then that the bees remain loyal? Yeah, I mean, it's not so much, you know, loyal, they just, they know when they're onto a good thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, yes, you know, the, the best thing. And, and kind, of, kind of what happens as well is that the minute um, the queen decides this is okay as a place, she, she, she signifies that by starting to have babies. And then the minute any living thing starts to have babies, that's its home. I can actually feel the passion coming off you. It's quite contagious for uh, me and everybody here, including the film crew. So, Bill, it seems you're part of an ever-growing community that is propelling this trend of beekeeping. And for some, this newfound hobby is in response to our current climate crisis, coupled with the sharp decline of bees that have been documented over the past 50 years. So, I guess what we're all wondering is how bees found their way into your life. I was uh, uh, filming, my, you know, my kind of day job is a, a director of television drama and uh, I, I was filming uh, a scene of a show that I piloted called Lewis, Inspector Lewis. I was working with a cameraman and we were shooting a scene with a family and they were supposed to be having this kind of like really relaxed lunch outside and uh, we were filming in kind of late October and it was absolutely freezing. Anyway, the cameraman was like, you know, lovely man uh, called uh, uh, Bond, Paul Bond. Um, and he, um, he was kind of like really kind of dutifully listening to his boss describing, you know, what, what, what I kind of wanted. But as he was listening to me, he just kind of bent down and picked up something off the, off the lawn that we were standing on and, uh, and then sort of pretended that he hadn't done it. Anyway, and then he started blowing into, his, into the hand that he'd picked it up with and again trying to pretend that he wasn't doing it. And eventually my curiosity got the better. I said, Paul, what, you know... What's in, what's in your hand? And he, he opened his hand out and lying on his palm, on its back, was a dead bee. He said, well, sometimes when they, this time of year, when they fly out of the hive, 
to get food if they get cold enough if it gets below 60 if their body gets below 60 degrees the, the, the muscles actually they literally can't fly because they're just too cold and uh, if nothing happens they'll just die outside the hive so but sometimes if you just warm them up a little bit um, then the muscles can come back and and as he said that this bee kind of its legs started waving and it got up on its feet and it flew off and I just thought oh my god you've resurrected a dead bee and he was going oh no no just gave her a helping hand but what I remembered was the look in his eyes as that bee flew off the minute you you start doing that you've kind of got a dog in the fight of the environment or a bee in the fight of the environment and what's really surprising is that the minute you start keeping bees like any any animal that you're kind of interacting with you you worry about whether it's got any food so you'd suddenly find yourself noticing if there are any flowers in bloom for them and all that kind of thing there's something you care about which is a wild thing out in the environment you know you want it to thrive it's that kind of thing of caring for a, a living creature that is part of your world that's important now more than ever in the current climate now bill um your book outlines the idle way to keep bees with minimal interference which is extremely attractive to people who live busy lives how successful has your journey been with it so far and can hive keeping be a lucrative business i i don't do it to feed my family and if you're doing it to make money you kind of move from hive keeper through to beekeeper through to honey farmer if you're feeding your family with it then i'm not going to you know stand in your way and i'm not going to judge you for that but what you're sort of it's also a question of the level of exploitation of the bees it's a question of how much you're taking from them you know i mean i take the bare minimum you touched on this earlier but what percentage of honey should be left for the bees that they can survive and the whole process is worthwhile about you know between five and ten thousand of them stay alive over the winter and the reason for that is that it means that when spring first comes and the first crocuses pop up and there's some food there are you know five thousand bees ready to go out there and get this operation back in business again and you know you know start with a bang and really you know get uh, things going get the momentum going uh, but what it means is those five ten thousand which have to be kept alive over the winter uh, kept warm kept alive and it's crucial so basically you need they need honey to do that so what i would uh, do is uh, that th there are kind of amounts people people have done calculations about how much um honey bees will need to survive the winter you know you sustain them over the winter but here's the really cool thing if you insulate your hive then guess what they need less fuel to keep the same temperature over the winter that means an uninsulated hive would use 50 percent more honey so if you're interested in in getting a lot of honey then you should also insulate because the bees what they will do is that they, they can't they haven't got a crystal ball they don't know what how long or how cold the winter's going to be so what they do is they just spend the summer gathering as much honey as they possibly can and that will depend on how much is out there and how many of them there are so they'll try and have as many babies as possible so they can get out there and get as much honey as possible so they give them the best chance of getting through the winter they're bloody hard workers they're bloody hard workers <laughs> yeah. yeah and so 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 they very very often if they're successful and there's a lot of food plant blossoms in the summer they will make more honey than they need and that's what as a beekeeper you can take without killing the bees so what would you say to people who believe hive keeping is really challenging like you have to be some sort of expert and what's your take on the fear surrounding their vulnerability to viruses and the threats of the Asian hornet all these things haven't just suddenly started appearing in the last 20 years the bees have been around for 15 million years now the idea that there's not been something even worse than a hornet something even worse than varroa even something worse than deformed wing virus or bee paralysis the, the idea that these things have all just come in the last 30 years and for the 15 million years before that the bees had it easy it you know, I think it's just nonsense so basically we're not going to be able to fix those things the bees are going to fix them I wouldn't bet the farm on a you know a series of pretty stupid apes who think that they you know know what they're um, know what they're doing when they clearly don't so uh, what so what I would say is is uh, a bit like COVID-19 your best 
defense against disease is health. Be healthy, be strong. And the best way we can help the bees do that is by providing them with accommodation that allows them to spend the most amount of energy doing productive stuff. And this is why I call myself the idle beekeeper, because being idle is not about being lazy. There is a difference between being lazy and being idle. Being idle is being canny. Being idle is being clever. Being idle is being able to spend the minimum amount of time doing boring so you can spend the maximum amount of time doing stuff that is productive and interesting. And the other thing that I do in terms of health and disease uh, again goes back to trees and 15 million years. And that is I grow some mushrooms in my garden. And what it is, is that there's a, there's a fantastic uh, maverick mycologist, a mushroom guy called Paul Stamets. And he also keeps bees. And he discovered his bees were, he was growing King Strafaria uh, mushrooms in his, in his backyard. And he one day discovered the bees were pushing these uh, bits of wood chip off, not the mushrooms, but the mycelial, mycelial mat that grows under the surface, those kind of strands. And they were doing it, and he noticed that on these strands there were certain kind of nodes where there were little droplets of fluid, and the bees were drinking this fluid. So he decided to investigate this fluid. This fluid is antiviral, it works against HN51 flu, it's antibiotic, it's antiseptic. This stuff is like the chemist for bees. And four, you know, 15 million years ago and 5 million years ago in forests, there would have been loads of rotting trees that had fallen down because that's part of nature's cycle. Nowadays in forests, the foresters take all those trees out because they don't want the rot to infect other things. But that rot, A, gave you cavities, and B, once the tree fell down and there wasn't a cavity anymore, it gave you the chemist for all your, um, you know, these amazing medications. So the other thing that I do is I have, you know, a little plot in my garden, and you could do it in a tub or a bucket where you have some mushrooms growing so that the bees have got a pharmacy nearby uh, the, so they can get these mushroom juices that they've been using for 15 million years as um, medicine. Paul Stamets has got patents on these things. They are like 100 times more effective than the medicines we have. If only we was as clever in our fight to find the remedy for COVID-19, eh? Exactly. Well, maybe the bees will show us, you know. So trailing on from that, I wonder how your bees got on during lockdown. I bet you was doing a lot of hive keeping in those quiet times. Well, when, when I say hive keeping, Apart from two days of actual work, not days, but two, two days in my diary when I do something to the bees. Most of the time when I'm hive keeping, what it involves is lying on my roof, um, watching the bees coming and going. A bit like a fisherman, only I can actually see the bees, the fisherman can't see the fish. Um, and I'm just watching what's going on at the hive entrance because you can tell quite a lot about what's going on inside the hive, from the traffic coming in and out, what they're bringing in and out, the pollen that's going in, their behavior, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you're watching that and you're going, this is good. Uh, and there are, there are beekeepers who like to inspect their hives and they like to open the hives up. The trouble with that is the heat's escaped. That lovely 35 degrees centigrade heat. If a pregnant lady went into the doctors for a checkup and they said, well, we're just gonna operate on you, and have a look inside. She would say, well, why, why, why don't you ask me how I feel first? I read somewhere that bees have a vibrational communication method, which makes you wonder how challenging it must be for them to communicate in noisy urban areas like these. Did you notice any difference in their behavioral patterns during the quieter time of lockdown? It's, it's hard to tell, uh, but I mean, what, what they spend inside the hive, they communicate, um, uh, vi by vibrations. It's a bit like kind of uh, the world wax web. They, they vibrate the comb and they send kind of messages. So, so when a bee wants to communicate something, it will grip onto the honeycomb and it will vibrate its body. Information like, you know, where food is and where a potential new home might be is all communicated via vibration. So if, um, you know, someone starts, um, you know, digging up the road, right by your hive, then that, that vibration interferes with, interferes with their communication. So during the lockdown, my hives are on the roof quite close to the Westway. So the, with, with the drop in traffic, the really dramatic drop in traffic on the Westway, I could actually hear my bees properly for the first time. So their hearing is so much more sensitive 
the mind. So for them, it must have been just like, oh my God, we can actually hear ourselves think. We know that bees have their own hierarchy or sort of social system they use to make everything work. Is it fair to say there are some similarities we share with the bee kingdom and their behaviour as social insects? Do we ourselves have a sort of hive mentality and what, if anything, can be learned from them? It's kind of interesting. What we do is that we project our social values and organisational politics onto the hive. There's a fantastic etching, which I, there's a copy of in the book, um, which was done in kind of Victorian times, Dickens, and it's called the British Beehive. And it's a beehive and there's the Queen at the top, Queen Victoria, and then there's the kind of clergy and the military and then the kind of professions and the civil service, and right down the bottom is the workers. In a beehive, the Queen is usually at the bottom. And inside the hive, they have various jobs. And the jobs are sort of like cleaner, um, you know, sort of a, a nectar gatherer. And the jobs, uh, there is kind of, and there is a kind of progression. There's a kind of a ladder of progression. But it's very democratic because all these will do all jobs. They don't get stuck. They don't go, thank you, Gov. I'm just a, I'm just a cleaner. I, you know, I'm very happy where I am. I don't want social mobility or any of that bollocks. They will all uh, go up. But crucially, so they've got this kind of, you know, uh, career path, but because they will all do it, it's not like this kind of class system whereby you're trapped, or a caste system where you can only do one. They will all do all the jobs. And the scout bees, who are the ones who are effectively looking for someone new to live and picking that or that insulated, are the oldest, wisest bees. And only, they only do this job because they know what a colony is going to need to live. And here's the other thing that I wanted to uh, kind of share with you in terms of uh, democracy. The scout bees, when they are looking for a new place to live, they, they're flying off. There's lots of them. They're, they're, these seniors, they're flying off. They're looking at all kinds of holes, cavities, nooks, crannies. You know, oh, you know, can we live under that basketball hoop? No, it's a bit windy. Can we live over there? Someone's compost bin, you know, whatever. They're looking around. And what they do is they check them out and they literally measure them and then they come back to the colony and they report back like an estate agent only the big difference is they never ever lie and but the thing is is that they can't like we would go yeah i like that click like and then you get boris johnson or trump whereas with the bees what happens is they go okay so yeah that sounded really interesting so i'll go and take a look for myself so other scout bees go to that place that's been described and they check it out and they come back and they go you know what it's pretty damn good so basically what happens is is that this there is a sort of like a, a democratic debate where they might start off with 16 possible sites for a new home and it will then gradually winnow down to enthusiasm for two and then it becomes like the houses of parliament and you get literally bees headbutting other bees off the dance floor to try and say no no don't go to your place come to mine don't you know and eventually we're going to go to that one and then that's when you see a swarm flying like a black cloud and then they kind of move into the cavity and that's their new home. And one of the things that they will, one of the reasons why they would choose a, uh, a hive is the insulation. So I've insulated my hives, they're kind of clad in insulation. And so I, I was providing accommodation that was democratically chosen by people. It's fair to say as we conjure up our own new normal that there's a lot to learn from the bee colony. So here's, here's um, after, after June the 14th, 2017, that's one of my hives on my roof, insula clad in insulation, and that's Grenfell Tower. Wow. Which is also yeah. clad in insulation. And so uh, I kind of asked the question about what would honeybees and their system of democracy think of our system of democracy, about why that building was clad in insulation and how people were housed there and the democracy involved in that accommodation being considered suitable for them. And, and, so, and also now, uh, you know, uh, this, is, this is Grenfell as it was after the fire. Now it's, it's wrapped up in weatherproof fabric and we've got forever in our hearts written on it. You know, the reason why scout bees don't lie is because when, when, when the colony chooses somewhere on their advice, where are the scout bees going to live? in that place. How many of the people who decided to clad Grenfell and upgrade it live in it? None. You know, what can we learn? Would, 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 they care, would they have cared more 
if their families were living in there. So the scout bees, you know, that's part of the bee democracy. And the big, the big thing about it is, is that they don't just take someone's word for it. They go and check it for themselves. They check. The architect actually reads the whole of the fire advice about the cladding. Doesn't just go, oh yeah, 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 I, I thought it'd be dealt with at a later stage, so I approved it. You know, it's really important. This is about the health and well-being of your family. And um, so I think that in terms of, you know, uh, the, the written the class system, I think we have a lot to learn from their democracy. There's a fabulous book called Honey Bee Democracy written by Professor Tom Seeley, who is um, the expert on bees living in trees. And he tries to run his university department on the principles of honeybee democracy and says it's very effective. <laughs> anyway, he's biased, but anyway. So, so, that, so that would be, uh, I mean, for me, personally, up on my roof, as a sort of someone being a hive keeper and trying to look after uh, an organism which required a home, providing a home for them, and my big thing being clad it with insulation, to have Grenfell Tower which was clad in insulation, supposedly for the benefit of the occupants, and it went horribly, horribly wrong. I think, it, I think it's, a, it's a question of how far you extend the notion of family. If you think family is 2.4, then you've got it wrong. On that note, do you believe the bees will survive the current external factors that threaten their existence? Yes. I think I, I'm more worried about us surviving it than the bees. We, they've been around for a lot. They've been successful survivors for a lot longer than us. Um, I know. I, th I think. I think. You know, we're quite. We're quite resourceful. A lot of our social structures won't survive it. Some. Some. Some of them, I hope, won't. So there you have it. For anyone who's interested in hive keeping, Bill Anderson's book, The Idle Beekeeper, is the definitive guide to get inside. That was Bill Anderson, who's given us a far more optimistic outlook on bees in the midst of all the fears surrounding their extinction, he believes they stand a good chance. Now we're off to somewhere called Bee Urban to speak to Barnaby Shaw. Now Barnaby spends his time looking after bees right in the heart of London, in Kennington Park, caring for their hives, harvesting the honey and teaching others about their welfare, often in the most unexpected of locations. From rooftops to car parks, these urban hives are home to swarms of city-dwelling bees busily working away to build the structures they feed, grow and reproduce in. Want to find out how they do it? Let's peek inside their hive. So we're live here from Kennington Park and Barnaby joins us, who is the founder of Bee Urban. So can you tell us what is Bee Urban? What's it all about? What happens here? Okay, so we are a social enterprise. We're kind of a, an environmental kind of community group, we always like to say. Um, predominantly kind of, we work with honeybees, but then we also encourage and we garden in different spaces, either local council estates and in this garden here, we have lots of volunteering done here to improve the space that we're in and encourage people locally to, to grow for bees and to grow for themselves in terms of fruit and vegetables, etc. So yeah, so we yeah we're kind of an environmental community organisation, social enterprise. Yeah, this is our base. Yeah, this is a beautiful base as well. And for those listening, um, it's sort of like a corner behind the calf. It's like an enchanted garden actually. When you walk in, Thanks, uh, yeah. it's got some beautiful smells and wild, just surrounded by very wild plants and the buzzing of the bees, the hives, and yeah, it's really uh, picturesque and a really peaceful place that you've created here. What made you sort of create this? What's your background? What spurred you on to do this? Yeah, so we, we've, it, we've taken quite a few steps until to this kind of moment in time, I suppose. So I've been um, looking after bees for about 15 years and it's kind of, yeah, kind of a culmination of, of intrigues and interests that we've taken on and intrigues of beekeeping a love of kind of the outdoor space and, and gardening and horticulture um, and then having lots of other key like volunteers who've kind of had similar interests who've galvanized to, to kind of make new spaces really so so yeah so it's kind of taken a few kind of steps to come to this point and we only really so I've been speaking for 15 years but we only really set up be urban and became like more of a 
a kind of constituted kind of formalized kind of organization in kind of 2011 12 so it kind of yeah it's kind of taken a few steps to kind of get to this point in time well it seems that you've created like an almost a heaven for bees here but also for the community too and I know community is at the heart of what you do here at Be Urban. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what, what functions you have on here, who benefits from this space and how you use it? So yeah, we do quite a few different things in a normal year. I was trying to explain earlier, but um, so normally our core is kind of doing volunteering and working with local residents, people to kind of want to kind of Im- Im- help us improve the space here, but also give the opportunities to kind of either come and work in a garden space or to, to grow their own elements so it's kind of like it's a combination of those kind of those things but we also kind of work with like a whole kind of gamut or host of kind of different kind of community groups and organizations so we have worked with kind of local special educational needs schools we have classes that we've prior to covid we were we were kind of doing here facilitating here uh, we also have like local uh, primary schools who will arrange visits and come to this location where teach them about bees and the importance of bees or go to their premises their schools and, and do that we've we have like a local we have kind of a, a, a kind of women's mental health kind of group who kind of come and use the space here once a week we have another local artist who we she kind of hires a space to facilitate her mosaic classes that she runs yeah, we kind of, yeah we do kind of other elements where we uh, kind of work with different organisations, entities. So we kind of have worked with community payback and those kind of volunteering schemes. We've kind of worked with NCS and Na- National Citizens uh, Service. We've been doing that for the last three or four years, where we have kind of um, these kind of cohorts of, of young teenagers who kind of are there trying to do some volunteering and work with community organisations. And then yeah, we work with local tenants and resident associations kind of helping them facilitate either kind of greening their estates planting on their estates or projects that we run on there anyway so we've we have I didn't mention it earlier but we do have been running a kind of a community project on another council estate locally on a suburb council estate where we have a growing space a little bit like we've got here we've got some bees on a, on a like a small kind of utility roof um, shed space and then we have like a workshop space, which we host kind of um, bicycle maintenance kind of projects there. Um, right. We've been doing that for for eight years or so. So sat- usually we would every Saturday have like a bicycle maintenance project, and we kind of get young people to engage in the the garden space as well. So yeah, so we we kind of do activities like that. Mm, the bees are not the only thing that are busy here it yeah, seems there's so a lot do, going on yeah we, um, we do normally do a few things yeah i suspect the the lockdown has been challenging yeah. has it been less busy in that time i mean i know you're situated in a park yeah. which is a great uh, sort of thing available given yeah, that was the yeah. only place people could go uh, for their daily exercise and yeah. find themselves in here did you find anything changed over lockdown f- for this space and moving yeah. forward is there going to be some changes on how you use it? Definitely, uh, for all of that, really. So we, so through lockdown, we've, we, we, following up, we've had more visitors on site um, because people are kind of curious, you know, and curious, using the park more often. If mm. the gates are open, um, people have been wandering in. We've kind of haven't really been doing volunteering days normally through lockdown for obvious reasons. We've kind of started to ease that up a little bit and trying to. You know socially kind of distance groups and because we we do have we do some we've got some beds and some an orchard that we manage in the park and a, and a compost heap area so we're kind of able to kind of try and get people to keep in a distance when they're working on site so we have been leasing that up in recent weeks but normally we haven't so it's been a little bit strange we've kind of missed really missed our volunteers and like i was mentioning some, some volunteers who live locally have been wandering and say hello some of the regulars have actually come and did a few things but yeah, that's kind of a little bit, you know, it's a bit sparser and we aren't really doing that. We, we do have kind of a lot of different sites and around town that we manage hives at. So we've had, we, you know, we've had to keep that management and that, that animal husbandry element going. So that's been really good uh, for our own sanities to still be able to kind of get around town and do that. But yeah, it's kind of, it's changed quite a bit. And I think our normal, I was mentioning uh, this, this kind of, these kind of beekeeping experiences that we run with another organisation on the on the weekend during spring and summer months, we've 
we are kind of going to start that back in August, but um, I think that we're going to do completely different, and I think we're going to it's going to be a bit more constrained in terms of numbers are going to be a lot less, football is going to be a lot less. So yeah, that's going to be a bit tricky. So yeah, so we, we've had to like change or even put a stop to quite a lot of the things that we normally do. And then yeah, we you know we're you know we're kind of a social enterprise and in terms of like you know, financial constraints, yeah, that's kind of had some issues with that as well so it's such a uh, shame it's like you've got more bees than people and visitors and volunteers because of it how many bees do you actually have on site what's the sort of colony size you have so we haven't got as many as we normally have for various reasons but we have got eight active hives here and then we've got these kind of hives which we call like nucleus hives really so they're kind of small startup kind of colonies so they're not quite a large um, established. established colony, yeah, exactly. So they're, the ones we're kind of growing on to become kind of normal size kind of colonies of bees, really. So I just um, realised it must be impossible to count them. Yeah, so it's how tricky. do you work yeah. it out yeah, if you've lost any, if they've been loyal yeah. to come back? How how would you sort of gauge that? Yeah, I mean, like sometimes you can like see the density of bees, but yeah, we've had a few couple of swarms actually um, okay. in a couple of hives where they kind of start to make a new queen and then they leave en masse, which we try to kind of manage and, and prevent from happening. We've had that, so you, you can kind of see a density and, and, and numbers are less. And then what we might also do is is kind of do a guesstimation in terms of, so internally the, we've got these boxes of hives, which are boxes, and we've got these segments, so there's layers of boxes. And then internally you have these segments or frames, um, these different components inside uh, the box itself so you can you can give it a guesstimation in terms of um how Capacity, many of those yeah um, how many of those kind of those frames are kind of covered with bees and what the densities are and then yeah you can guesstimate the capacity around that right so you can you can it's see tricky it. you, stuff yeah when you open up, up when you open up the hive and you and you know you've got a hive where there's sixty thousand plus bees you, you you kind of know that there's there's kind of work it out yeah, yeah. You know there's, there's a lot going on so yeah but yeah you can't really individually kind of name them or count them yeah. I hear that. For those of us, I guess, that aren't experts or our only sort of res- reference point to bees is Winnie the Pooh or yeah. like the bee movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. Could you give us some sort of like fun facts about the bees, what you've learnt from sort of looking after them, beekeeping all these years? Yeah, well, I can try. I can try. <laughs> well, like I said, numbers are always kind of interesting. So, like, they can oh. kind of uh, grow into kind of population size of, you know, 60,000 plus kind of bees during the peak summer. Uh, In terms of like them producing this honey you've got in front of you, I think they say one bee will kind of average uh, a teaspoon of honey in its lifetime or less, even less than that. And there's notions around, um, usually you get like a standardized pound jar of honey, which is probably about half a kilo roughly uh, in weight. And I think there's a notion that, you know, probably thousands of bees would go uh, the equivalent of in terms of flights I think they say like three and a quarter times the circumference of the earth to actually forage for that amount of honey. Wow. So there's kind of quite epic kind of journeys that the bees will do to gather this nectar. And then there's the nectar they gather, they also kind of refine. And usually they will kind of gather like three times the amount of of nectar to produce like one part honey. Um, So they kind of like vaporize and can you know kind of concentrate the, uh, the 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 honeys within that nectar that they gather so it's kind of an epic kind of resourceful kind of like community going on within the the hives themselves so then how long would it take to produce what we have here in front of us which is quite a large jar of honey <laughs> yeah so but, it will kind of vary a bit so like yeah. beekeepers will talk about these like nectar flows and these right. peak nectar flows within the season um so basically if you have like a colony which has got a really good high population of adult bees that, that can forage. So it's only really the, the the last three or four weeks of their life, adult lifetime, the bees will actually be foraging bees. The rest of the time spent internally inside the hive, kind of feeding the young and, and kind of processing this honey and all these other activities they do internally in the hive. But so you kind of need like the right number of bees and the right time of year because time of year is really important in terms of forage and what food they can gather. I would say kind of between June to early July is kind of when there's lots of 
So it's quite a good forage source which in quite abundance, which is lime trees in, in, in London. And that's kind of when they are... Is that their, their favourites? Yeah, it? it's when yeah. they're flowering. And it's, it just, they basically just get so much nectar from those, though, that source. Actually, there's a huge influx really rapidly that, that comes into the hive. But, you know, any time from spring onwards, they would do that. But you kind of need, you need this kind of number, this kind of density of bees to actually gather that. So actually in that, in that time frame, you know, they can bring quite a lot of honey and nectar and process it within quite a short period of time. But you do really need like the right natural food source for them and the numbers of bees to actually go and throw that back to the hive really. So yeah, so there's kind of a little bit of a balance in all, all of that. But yeah, so it kind of can vary. So I won't put a time in it, but yeah, we've had a few colonies where they've brought back maybe like 15, 20 kilos of honey within a week, span of a week into the hive, if not more. So it can yeah. be quite rapid, but wow. you know, there's, there's the whole management of the hive and the bees. Um, and then things must change over winter, like yeah, drastically, exactly. yeah. Yeah, so the you know, density of populations will kind of contract and shrink during the winter months. And then kind of, you know, as, as it warms up through spring, Kind of then there'll be a bit of spring build up again of population sizes so you kind of need everything to be in the right place at the right time and like it's not just the bees and i mentioned the numbers and the forage source but it's also the weather and the, you know their abilities to access that and you know the conditions to be right in terms of um yeah food uh, liquid for the you know water for the, the the plants as well so it's kind of there's a kind of an interesting kind of balance between all of those elements which means that yeah they can produce this honey really well, it must be good honey because while we've been here, you've already had two or three visitors come in yeah. asking for your pots of honey. So we're going to look forward to tasting some of this later on. So Barnaby, tell us, what food do bees like? Um, well, definitely like a flower or two. Um, Any preferences? Yeah, I think so. Like we always say like the general kind of general rules are to make sure you have plants that are going to flower uh, late and early. Um, so usually like early kind of January, February time, you might get early bulbs like snowdrops, uh, winter aconites, kind of crocuses, stuff like that. There's not always food around, so it's really important to try and have food available for bees then. And then late, late summer as well, kind of autumn time, there's not always lots of forage around. Uh, so it's really important. But if you generally, I think a lot, a lot of kind of nurseries these days where you even have signs which will say like, you know, good for pollinators, so good for bees, butterflies, etc. And you know, buy those plants which are not always like a double-crowned flower, uh, and they will provide you know pollen and nectar for for creatures, you know, smaller creatures really. So look look out for that. But you know, there are some classic ones which are really good. If you're buying shrubs, like lavender is really good because it it flowers for an extended period of time. Won't so make them sleepy, will it? It won't make them sleepy. I don't <laughs> think. No, it might a little bit. Uh, it certainly makes me sleepy when we do it. Um, but yeah, it kind of you know it kind of is drought tolerant as well, so it doesn't need all that kind of care and TLC. And then yeah, and but there's there's quite a low, large amount of like different forage for for bees. Definitely, if you've got you know if you're privileged enough to have a garden space, you can get trees in there. Trees are always really good. Uh, and they will provide quite an abundance of, of forage for different creatures. But again, it's choosing the right, the right tree or the right shrub or bulb for them. So yeah, kind of bear that in mind. But there's, I think there's a lot of resources out there that people can um, kind of tie into to try and plant the right things for bees. Um, so yeah. Uh, so the bees you have here on site, did they come here organically, naturally, because of you? got your food and everything, all mm. the right optimum stuff that they like, or did you have to purchase? So the honeybees we kind of moved onto site. Okay. But I can show you in a bit maybe. You can probably see it from here. You see those the logs stacked up. Oh yeah. So you've got these logs which have got like holes that we've drill, drilled into. And we usually kind of drill like various sizes from like 10 millimeter diameter down to like two millimeter diameter. And they, they're really kind of habitats we've created for like um, solitary bees and other creatures. Okay. And they will naturalize um, to that hopefully that habitat we've made and actually so we get we get quite a few different species in uh, but actually what are nesting at the moment are leaf cutter bees they've literally just started to nest in them in the last week do they literally um, cut leaves is that how they earn their, their stars title. and stripes yeah. yeah exactly absolutely so okay. they will they basically will chomp a leaf cut a section of leaf out right and bring it back to that hollow and then use that leaf as like a, a like a chamber barrier wall to the to, to kind of um, like a to, door, like, <laughs> like a door. Yeah, yeah exactly. Privacy, like a door. privacy <laughs> for their young, you know, their young kind of um, 
young bees, their adolescent bees to kind of like grow into the adult form. Um, so yeah, they will use that and they will kind of literally use the leaf to seal up the, the front entrance of it. And you know, think of it as a little tunnel, but basically they will lay an egg in, in, in various sizes, sections of that tunnel. And then each time they lay an egg, they will put a, a door barrier up with a leaf and then lay another one and leave it a food deposit and then repeat it, repeat it until it gets to the kind of the entrance of that, that tunnel, that hole. Uh, and yeah, that's what, exactly what it does. And so that's clever. Why it's got the uh, the title, yeah. So yeah, so it's really quite cool to see them back. And we've we've had them up since um, I think like 2000 and like 15, 16, and only in like so we've had different species use it, but only in the last two years we've had leaf cutter bees using it. So they will, you know, if you you know if you do make it they will uh, they will come they will to come it. build yeah, it naturally. and they will come <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't know what that thing is but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah with honeybees it's a little bit different because you yeah. need you kind of need you need a, a local kind of collective and then you're waiting for this thing that i mentioned earlier about swarming so that that's how they kind of like will divide and then naturalize to one locality so it's it's a little bit trickier for honeybees but definitely other wild bees you can definitely encourage into your garden space just by the simplicities of just using a a drill to drill a hole or people use like straws to, to put down for, for them so like really simple things you can do to, to you know increase habitational space yeah. well this place is steeped in um, natural literacy literally need their own documentary in the meantime yeah I guess it is quite hard work I mean you look after the bees you look after the community there's a balance there to be struck as well um, what's what is your hopes for the future of Be Urban? Sustainability and um, it'd be nice if there was a, a, a bee rural maybe, um, Be America or I don't know. Yeah so like you know it'd be good to kind of have like, like we're based in you know obviously we're based in center of London but it'd be nice to have like another apiary space and maybe a large one out of town or maybe even a partnership with a different country. I think there is like I think there are places elsewhere that are doing Absolutely. I mean even on um, a local level it's like there should be one of these in every park like yeah i always say like that's, yeah. that's where like you know a lot of beekeepers will do it in their private gardens but it's really good um when you have you know kind of community spaces with with you know a bee community space where people can access it and do it um and yeah i think i think it's another resource that parks should have and it can be fairly sustainable you know everyone thinks that yeah you can bring in lots of money from from all these endeavors but but yeah no it's kind of it's it's great for the community there's so many like we've mentioned a few different activities but there's so many different things you can do in terms of activities and 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 offsprings from the from keeping bees that that yeah so you know in terms of having a community group within those kind of spaces it kind of means that you've got quite a lot going on a lot of things you can you know spin off from on the whole absolutely element. like you mentioned earlier the sort of groups that you run here and yeah. mental health sort of and i've never actually made the link between but i guess it could be quite therapeutic coming here have yeah, you found yeah, that absolutely. to be quite successful and i think yeah we all, all our volunteers do say they get like a really good energy when they when they come and and you know either work with the earth or kind of you know involved with the space here and generally so yeah i think a lot of people do feel like it's like you know kind of a you know kind of a little bit of a release in terms of of, of coming here and working you know I, not necessarily the bees but working in the, you know in the on the in the environment and on the environment and and doing these different activities and i suppose you know it's also about being outside in an open environment which you know it's even stronger to be said that it's you know with all the covid issues that it's really Absolutely. important to be outside and you know and you know not just in the fresh air but kind of work on the land really so it's kind of yeah, so for for all of that, I think every, you know all our volunteers do say that they they you know they feel better from coming to our space. So so yeah, absolutely, it's kind of it's really important in so many levels to, to do. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see and hear that uh, not only the bees benefit from this space, and I yeah. hope that it continues and just grows and grows from here on out. And Thanks, yeah. for anyone listening and watching, um, can you let them know where to find you? Because sometimes yeah. we can get lost in these parks, and it'd be great to put <laughs> yeah, a call so out there to get people to come. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we're we're based in Kennington Park. It's our main space, and we're just behind the cafe in Kennington Park. We are on like I think we have got like one of those Google pin drop things going on, so you can find us through that, that map. But we're just behind the cafe in Kennington Park, which is well signed. Um, and yeah, you'll see our big blue guys, uh, gates. We've got like a huge hexagonal patterns with our 
uh, livery display signs on um, and yeah we're always open Thursday afternoon and Friday afternoon from 12 till 4 yeah uh, yeah Callum Park well you heard it here first guys um, I'd recommend anyone to come to this space uh, especially as we have this time on our hands as well it's a real nice space uh, thank you thank you Barnaby for your time cheers Michelle thanks listening to Portobello Talk Radio, the authentic voice of Ladbroke Grove.